Being an agent in a contact center can sometimes feel like Groundhog Day. You take call after call every shift, and most of them sound like the calls that you took the day before that, and the day before that, and the day before that. Of course, not everyone can thrive in that kind of environment. I mean, Bill Murray spent 12,395 days repeating the same day over and over, but he didn't have a choice in the matter. Contact center agents most certainly have a choice, so it's critical to hire people who appreciate stability and predictability at work. E.J. Kritz understands that customer experience begins with employee experience. If you're wondering why your contact center attrition is high, or why you have challenges hiring, or both, E.J. has some suggestions for you, and no, they don't involve AI. This week on Next in Q, E.J. and I discuss the most overlooked issue impacting employee retention what you can learn from a blank cereal box, overcoming challenges presented by applicant tracking systems, how the experience of letting people go can impact your business, employee satisfaction versus employee engagement, how to make onboarding an amazing experience, the value of boomeranging new hires in training, and three words that will change your approach to public speaking. Let's get to it. Welcome to Next in Q, the podcast for contact center and customer experience professionals. Next in Q is brought to you by Happy Two Vision. Eliminate blind spots and see right through every conversation with Happy Two Vision. Learn more at HAPPITU.com. Now, here's your host, Rob Dwyer. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining another episode of Next in Q. My name is Rob Dwyer, and today joining me is EJ Kritz. EJ, how are you? I am fabulous. How are I, you? I am also, well, am I fabulous? I'm really, really good. Let's. let's I would frequently say if I was any better, I'd be you. Oh, wow. Okay. I'm excited about that. <laughs> I think you're also a liar, but okay. I'm good with that. <laughs> I, I like where you're headed. Today, I want to talk about a piece of customer experience with you that I think is often overlooked. And that is how we bring people into our organizations that serve our customers from an onboarding and training experience and how that impacts customer experience down the line. But before we get into that, I'd like to know how you got into this, because as I understand it, it looks like you were a salesperson uh, once upon a time, and now you're doing something a little bit different. So tell me about that. 
Well, this would be a good conversation because maybe I can tell myself how I got where I am today. <laughs> so actually, Rob, my career, my career started in broadcasting. Um, I had it in my head that I wanted to be a play-by-play -play announcer or radio DJ or whatever the case was. And I that's what I studied in school, which truthfully, being a communications major is what served me well today learning how to write, learning how to craft a story, learning how to tell a story. Um, so I did that for, for many years out of school, which was such a blast. Like talk about you leave college and then you go be a radio DJ. Like it's not even a real job. It's great. So um, I, I met the woman who I ended up marrying and I remember telling her I wanted to buy a used Audi A4 and she laughed uncontrollably and reminded me that I made $21,000 a year and there was no way I was going to be able to afford to buy a car, let alone an Audi. And um, I found my way into marketing. You know, that was a transferable skill for me. So I, I moved into the franchise world and I marketed a franchise for many years. Um, and then it was at a time where my wife had just graduated from law school and was looking for a, a position as an in-house counsel. And she was on a website for a very large bank, a bank called TD. And she said, hey, they're looking for a marketing person in the Boston area, which was where we lived at the time. And But this was also at a time where banks were kind of failing left and right. And it wasn't a great time to go move into financial services. And I was like, no, I'm not going to do that. And you know, she's kind of a hot ticket. And so she wrote a resume for me without my knowledge and applied for the job on my behalf. <laughs> and I receive a phone call from a recruiter and I just sort of played along and ended up getting the job, which was a really fun job. I would tell people I own Little League Baseball to the TD Garden and everything in the middle. Um, and and the great thing was, though, I went to work for an organization that was truly customer centric. It mm. wasn't until working for TD Bank where I started to really understand the role that customer experience had on uh, the business. And I remember there was a, a great woman who worked there at the time who's still a friend to this day. Her name is Linda Verba. And I remember hearing her speak at a corporate event and she said, and this always stuck with me, she said, customer experience is a profit driver. And from the moment she said that, I was hooked. Um, and so when the position to run sales and service for a, a pretty sizable chunk of the bank became available, it was a, an obvious stretch opportunity for me to go do that. I was successful in earning the position. I got put on a work group to lead the development of a new customer experience metric for the bank, uh, which we ended up calling, uh, it's actually a pretty cool name, LEI, the Legendary Experience Index, wow. uh, which is basically a net promoter. It's like a really fancy net promoter. Um, but but that's where I really uh, learned uh, and studied all things related to quantitative and qualitative customer experience measurement strategy uh, and so on. I uh, was absolutely hooked. Uh, I went to another bank where I led customer service uh, and customer experience strategy for the retail bank, uh, which included the the call center. So we had uh, we had about 600, 700 shares between three sites uh, at that bank. Um, and that led me to where I am today. So I uh, work for APC, which is a 26-year-old customer experience consultancy. And as we'll talk throughout our conversation today, much deeper than customer experience. Um, and I just get the pleasure of working with all sorts of different organizations in the private and public sector on, uh, as we say, powering human experiences. That's what gets us out of bed every day, isn't customer experience, but human experience and all things uh, related to that. So I didn't, I didn't traditionally study CX. Um, I didn't study business. Um, I'm not that person who worked at a bank and said, I started as a teller. No, I, I'm a total fraud. Uh, <laughs> imposter syndrome is alive and well with EJ. Um, but, I, but, you know, for most of my adult life, I didn't realize it at the time. But in almost every single job I had, be it morning drive time in Burlington, Vermont, or executive vice president of training and customer experience today, I, I'm studying what drives human beings. Mm -hmm. um, and so that sort of culminated into my work these days.
Yeah, that's really fascinating. Okay, serious question. Yes, sir. Who's your favorite play-by-play person? Oh, gosh. You know, they, they ask that question, like, if somebody were to narrate your life, who would you have narrate your life? And so there's the voice of my childhood was a guy named Sean McDonough, who a lot of people know today from ESPN. Uh, but he was the son of Will McDonough, who was a famous columnist for the Boston Globe. Mm-hmm. And so he was the voice of the Red Sox growing up and just somebody who I listened to uh, so much. But I've always been a big Al Michaels guy. Okay. Uh, uh, I've always been a big Keith Jackson guy. Um, it, so I, I live my life in moments, Rob. And so the favorite broadcasters of my life aren't those that are necessarily known as these great hall of fame broadcasters. They're people that their voice rings in my head because they were the voice of a, Mm -hmm. of a moment, you know? So growing up a big, um, uh, a big Patriots fan. uh, Yeah. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry. Um, You know, but the truth is though, you know, a lot of people don't remember this, but you know, when I was growing up, the Patriots were historically awful. Um, and bad so uniforms too. That, oh, they were the best uniforms. Uh, <laughs> but I do remember waking up on Sunday mornings and my dad and I would go get the Boston Globe and we would go straight to the sports page because back in those days and still do a degree these days, if you didn't sell enough tickets to your game, you were blacked out in the local market. Mm-hmm. So because the Patriots were so terrible playing in a God awful stadium that nobody wanted to go to, most of my early exposure to NFL was on radio mm. because it wouldn't be televised in our local market yeah. because no, you know, they were winning a game a year. Um, so nobody was going. So, you know, the, the gents who were doing Patriots football, you know, in the eighties, that's, that's voices of my childhood, you know? So I'll always pick a couple favorites and then there'll be a whole slew of people that you've never heard of in your life. Uh, just because, you know, I went to bed listening to those guys. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There are certainly some uh, some formative years where we just latch on to things that that um, I think are are part of what, what shapes us. And that is unique to where we grow up and what our interests are. And right. I think it's a really fascinating thing. It's kind of like music, right? I do have a dream of someday being on a golf course and bumping into Jim Nance and seeing if he'll record my outgoing voicemail on my cell phone. I think that would be really fabulous. Yes. Uh, w- will it start with hello, friends? It will, of uh, course, start with course. hello, friends. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Enough of Enough of that. Let's talk about onboarding and training. And let's start with why is that part of bringing people into an organization so critical? I would actually, if given permission, I would like to back up the train a station. Let's do it. Let's back it up. So it's one of the common things that I see with organizations that I work with is they ask me, Rob, that exact question. Like, how do we do a better job onboarding our new folks so they can hit the ground running represent the brand, just crush it, right? And I say, first thing I say is, could you please give me a copy of their job descriptions? Mm. And what I find is that, not, not universally, but frequently, it actually isn't the onboarding and training program that's a problem, it's the recruitment. Mm-hmm. And you can have the greatest onboarding program, you can have world-class training, but if you're bringing in the wrong people to begin with, what's what's sort of the point? Um, and so frequently when I read job descriptions, they're all sort of the same. Come work for this company. We're so darn special because of blah, 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 blah. And we've been around forever and blah, 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 blah. And you'll love working here because of blah, 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 blah. Here's what you'll do. Other duties as assigned. Equal opportunity employer. Click here to apply. And... I remember distinctly, there was a time in my life uh, working in a call center. We had one particular team of about 40 folks where, 
you know, call center attrition is inherently high, but, but it was much higher in this particular group. And so I started exit interviewing and I stumbled upon about four or five different people who upon the exit interview said some semblance of, I guess when I applied for the job, I just didn't realize how much time I'd be spending sitting at my desk on the phone. (laughs) (laughs) Said, well, I don't know when you saw a call center agent, you know, what you thought was going to go down, but, but it really opened my eyes to the perception of the applicant. Mm -hmm. And so I've gotten really passionate about human behavior. Um, And I do this exercise. So this will be like a steal this idea. Um, I do this exercise with some of my clients where uh, I present to them a blank cereal box. I buy them on Amazon. And I ask them, you know, I'll invite your, your audience to sort of picture the cereal aisle at your local grocery store, your Kroger or wherever you go. And I want you to think, Rob, like, if you look at the bottom two shelves of your cereal aisle, what kind of cereal are you going to find down there? The kind without a box. Oh, that's true. Okay. <laughs> that's true. I've never had somebody say that to me, but you're exactly right. Okay. But, go up one more they, shelf. Go the, up one the, more shelf. The answer is right. They're really <laughs> colorful, appeal to kids. Uh, the, the sugary, cartoony, that kind of stuff. Right. Right. What does the front of the box say? What kind of messaging would you find there? I mean, it's going to be exciting. It's going to be fun. And at the end of the day, uh, you're trying to appeal to kids, right? There you because go. You want the, you want the six-year-old to go, mom, dad, buy me that. That one. That. Right. That one. And then compared to the top two shelves, which would have. They would have my Cheerios because that's what I eat. Uh, even though my entire family makes fun of me for it, just plain <laughs> Cheerios. The, Good for uh, the heart, the, though, Rob. It Good is. For the heart. It's, it's heart healthy. Uh, the Wheaties, <laughs> the uh, the oat squares, or yeah. all of the stuff. Anything with some oat, people would anything say with brand cardboard. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. Right. So that is the the cardboard, the oat, the brand, the the fiber. That's a typical job description across almost any role in, mm. in, in customer service, right? Is they're, they're not written in a way the box doesn't appeal to the human being that you wish would apply for that job. Mm. And so then we say, okay, here's a blank cereal box. Here's a bunch of Sharpies. What would the box say? What would, it, what would the box look like that would attract the human being that you see being successful in the role, okay? And so then we can take it a little bit further than to into, into behavioral measurement. Another thing I'm wildly passionate about, um, my, my flavor of choice is the predictive index. Um, you know, there's DISC, there's Myers-Briggs, there's all those different things. I like predictive index because it's short takes like seven minutes to fill out the thing, right? Like, I don't want to ask my applicants, you just applied for a $15 an hour position and we're going to ask you to fill out this 45 minute assessment. You know, I, I think that's like an awful applicant experience. Um, so we're going to give you this like seven minute assessment. And that's going to tell me a few different things about you. It's going to tell me about your extroversion versus introversion. It's going to tell me about your patience, a massive thing in call center. If you skew very low on the patient scale, you're going to likely burn out of a call center job. Like Mm -hmm. I need somebody who's got very high patience. They're cool with predictability and stability and they want to be in one place all the time. Right. So I used the phrase a few moments ago, Rob, applicant experience. And I just wish more companies measured it and obsessed over the applicant experience. Because again, if my applicant experience has been, let's say, bumpy, if there's been friction, my early, even if I take the job, my early impressions of what it's going to be like to work for this company, and even my mindset walking in the door for day one orientation has all been shaped by 
my applicant experience. Mm -hmm. So AI plays a big role here. Uh, I'm, I'm growingly frustrated by how many great applicants are pre-screened out by a bot before a human recruiter has even seen the applicant. Mm -hmm. um, I'd argue that many customer experience and customer service jobs can be taught. Uh, I can't teach you to be an awesome human being. Um, <laughs> so if we're looking for somebody with a specific pedigree and a specific resume, we may be bypassing awesome human beings who are, as I like to say, behaviorally predisposed to be successful in the role. Um, so I'm, I'm looking to really strike a little bit of a bridge between traditional recruitment efforts, the AI that's involved in some of those recruitment efforts, um, and really that search for humanity, the search for the person who's not only right for the culture of the organization, but is behaviorally aligned to what that role demands. And so that's where that cereal box comes in is if you're looking for an extrovert who also craves stability, that person who really genuinely enjoys knowing that every day is going to be the same. It's Groundhog Day. <laughs> Right. Every day I'm going to come in, I'm going to sit at my desk, I'm going to open up my screen, I'm going to start taking calls, I'm going to do that uh, until my break, and then I'm going to go take my break, and then I'm going to come back, I'm going to take more calls, and oh, by the way, they're all the same call over and over and over again. There are people who who thrive and who really seek that out. Yeah. Um, and so my cereal box should address that. Uh, and and get me excited about the fact that um, that job's going to scratch that that itch. Yeah. So that's where I kind of like to back the trolley even before onboarding and even before training and say, you know, are we are we bringing folks into that talent funnel that are aligned for the role so we don't have constant churn of that onboarding mm -hmm. training effort? Yeah, you brought up something that I like to go back to, and that is kind of the, the ATS problem, I like to call it, which is, you know, the applicant tracking system. Mm -hmm. And it seems like almost every company has adopted technology to help them sift through applicants, to help them sift through resumes. And to your point, a lot of those get screened out for, for whatever reason, right? And there's a a little bit of a black box of why people get screened out. How do we overcome the challenges that are present there when at the same time, what I see often is that, uh, and I've, I've talked with people who are looking for jobs uh, very recently who see a job opening on on let's say LinkedIn or anywhere else. And within 20 minutes, 500 people have applied for that role. Right. Like I can't imagine as a recruiter trying to sift through all of those applicants manually to try and find someone who meets the behavior criteria that I'm looking for. So how do we solution for that? Because mm -hmm. there's an avalanche of applicants. And so we're trying to use technology, but it seems like the technology isn't always doing what we ideally hope it would do. Let me first say that there's by no means no perfect answer. I'm going to spitball a couple with you, but, you know, and I'd even add another further problem is that because these roles garnish uh, so much interest early on, Sometimes the role only sits there available for two days and then they shut it mm. off and they say, we have 700 applicants. I right. can't possibly have any more shut off the faucet. Mm -hmm. We can always turn it back on again if we need it. Um, and so there's a few things at play. One is it goes back to the job description and can we have applicants self-select out mm. early on? Right. And so that assumes something, Rob, and that is that they even read the job description. Right. <laughs> so one of my big pet peeves is the easy apply button on LinkedIn. Right. It takes nothing for somebody to go easy, apply, click. Yep. There's my basic information, submit, and I'm done. Now I'm in the funnel. 
right? It's just, it's lazy. It's lazy on the part of the applicant. It's lazy on behalf of the hiring company. So we, the easy button has to go away um, and, and companies should opt to not select that. But um, by certainly I like to create something, you know, applicants obsess over the first paragraph of their resume more so than hiring companies obsess over the first paragraph of the job description. So let's obsess over the first paragraph of the job description and write it in such a way that would give somebody a moment of pause to be like, eh, I need a job, but that's really not me. Right. Um, and, and sort of self-select out. Um, the other thing that I think is a worthy approach uh, is screening questions, right? Um, mm. I think, are there always going to be people out there, Rob, who lie about screening questions? Of course. Sure. Um, but if we could be thoughtful about our screening questions and and not just simply be like, do you have three to five years of experience in call center management? Like, let's be a little bit more intentional about our screening questions would be great. And then the third thing goes back to my behavioral assessments. Um, so predictive index has an open API, meaning... Uh, I could sink into, let's say, Workday and uh, create an environment where any applicant who passes through the screening questions and actually like gets to the, the funnel immediately receives an invitation to take the predictive index assessment. Um, now, on the back end, what an organization would do is create uh, behavioral guardrails for a job. Say we're looking for somebody with a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of this, and so on. And that could be based on any number of different factors it could be based on, Hey, here are top five performers. If they like had a baby, what would they look like behaviorally? We want more of those five people. <laughs> Rob's our top rep. We want more Rob's. How do we go find more Rob's? And so we put Rob in and we say, okay, let, how do they match up against our top performers? So a variety of different ways uh, that we can kind of do that. All of the folks who would then you know, first of all, so if you don't take the assessment, if you don't take PI, you're out. Yeah cared enough to apply for the job. We invited you to do a follow-up task. You didn't care enough to do that. Okay. So you're not for us. <laughs> you're not for us. You're out. Uh, and then the next step is we, uh, the system automatically scores the applicants on a scale of one to 10, 10 being the best on their behavioral alignment to the role, nothing to do with their experience, Nothing to do with their resume, but that would, Rob, allow us the opportunity to say, okay, here's our top 50, here's our top 100 just based on resume. Let's now pair them up against our top folks in the behavioral assessment and predictive index, let's say, who, who, who is an 8, 9, or 10? Yeah. And now we've sort of narrowed down that funnel even further. So it's given us a little, um, a little bit more data to go to. Mm -hmm. to bring some people in or rule some people out. So yeah. those would be a few different uh, suggestions that I would have. I don't think they'll rob, you know, ATS isn't going anywhere. No. Um, you know, we, we've cut down the number of recruiters. Um, and I guess the final thing I would say to a brand too is always be recruiting. You know, the yeah. goal is that by the time you post a role, you've got a pretty good short list of folks, which, which again, I'll give you some low hanging fruit. Um, what I don't love is how frequently companies don't go back to previous applicants. So you've got one open role. You had 10 people that based on their resume and or behavioral assessments, you really loved, but you only had one seat. It takes a little bit of courage to call somebody, maybe that you even interviewed, said, hey, Rob, this is EJ. You may remember we talked like four months ago. You didn't get the position, but I've remembered you mm -hmm. and another role's just come up. And I'm curious to know if you'd still be interested in joining the team, right? Yeah. That call takes courage, but back to applicant experience, the way you decline that person for the role better have been really good <laughs> because not only do you want that person to maintain interest in working for your company, but depending on what type, if you're Zappos, and you decline somebody for a job, don't you still want them to want to buy shoes from you? Mm -hmm. Right. So there's yeah. still a potential customer there. There's still a potential brand advocate there. So we have to be very, very thoughtful and maybe be so bold as to go back to our previous applicant pool 
And maybe the person you need for the job actually already works for your company. If you're a bank and you're looking for a call center manager, what if there's somebody really good, but today they work in collections or today they work in underwriting? We need to be, you know, they're already in your culture. They already understand your brand. They don't need to be onboarded to the same degree. So doing some internal recruitment is uh, also a great way to overcome some of the issues inherent within ATS. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's great advice for companies that are thinking about how they go about overcoming some of these challenges. And one of the things that you brought up that really sticks out to me is that experience of how we tell someone no and maybe it's not because you're not a great fit. We just have someone else that's a better fit and we're only going to hire so many people. It's just, it's the same thing as if, if you have to let someone go for whatever right. reason, right? And it could be non-performance related, right? We just, we, we need to downsize factors out of our control. That experience and that whether they're separating from the application process or sep separating from employment, that experience can have a big impact on your brand and, and what people say about working for you in the future that can impact your recruiting. So make that a good experience too, because you never know, number one, do I want them back or do I want to come to them again? Or number two, are they going to talk to people that might be good candidates for us that if the experience was bad, that candidate's going to say, nah, no thanks, yeah. not interested. My biggest fear, Rob, is that they'll have the most amazing career and then someday be in a position to hire me. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to be on the other end of that stick. Exactly. I think we just have to be, you know, it's just like this, is the platinum rule, man, mm -hmm. you know, we just have to just get back to being kinder humans to one another. Yeah. And, you know, when we think of this phrase of like human centric design, it's so often just lives in the customer experience and we don't, we don't bring it into the employee experience nearly as frequently as we should to the point where, you know, not to get off the beaten path, but I get super frustrated when the organizations come to my company and they say, we'd like to have you help us run an employee satisfaction survey. Now, of course, I'm very happy to have them as a customer. Um, but I always say, happy to work with you, but can we change it to employee engagement survey? And that's where we have a little bit of a conversation on the difference between somebody who's satisfied at work and somebody who's engaged at work. And what would an engaged person offer to your company versus a satisfied person? Um, and thankfully, virtually everybody goes, oh, you're totally right. Yeah. Oh, I meant employee engagement. That's what I totally meant. I don't even know why I said employee satisfaction. I meant employee engagement. I think that is a fascinating discussion. And it's not just with employees, right? There is a you talked about at a previous company running what was essentially a, a net promoter, but there's also, right, CSAT is kind of a mm -hmm. traditional uh, metric of how we're, how we're performing for a customer. Uh, I guess NPS is supposed to be that customer engagement survey, but I don't know that anyone's ever called anything a customer engagement uh, metric. And I wonder if we're sometimes measuring the wrong thing with both customers and employees. I think you have to have a system of checks and balances. You know, in most of the surveys that we run on the customer satisfaction side, we have NPS in there. Yeah, you know, it's a gold standard. Mm -hmm. um, but we also have CSAT in there. And I like to bookend them. I like to have CSAT up at the front and NPS at the back or NPS at the front and CSAT at the back, separate them just enough. Um, but then there's also, you know, customer effort score, mm -hmm. um, which I'm also pretty keen on. Um, and I think that those system of checks and balances are critical, but where we start to get into customer advocacy, we start to dip our toe into the, the true spirit of NPS is 
you know, there's, there's a couple of different ways you can gauge customer feedback, right? There's predominantly, there's a post episodic, somebody mm-hmm. just called the call center. We're going to send them a survey where they stay on the IVR and they take the survey right then and there. Okay, cool. We have that. Uh, but then there's a relational survey. So if you're doing only post episodic, you're only ever getting the feedback of the people who needed you. Right. And not the passive customer who's just bumping along happy with your brand. They've never mm-hmm. had a problem. They never had a call. They don't like banking in a branch. They don't have to visit, right? They're very happy to do business with you. They just don't ever really need you. Right. Um, and so how do we get their feedback? Because they tend to be promoters. They tend to be, you know, pretty delighted. Um, so we always recommend that in addition to some sort of a post-episodic survey, we do annually or semi-annually or even quarterly, like a JD Power type approach, a relationship survey mm-hmm. to cast a wider net around people that are otherwise not being asked how they feel about the brand. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, let's talk about the onboarding experience. Now let's. that we've got through the recruiting piece, these people, we've we've selected them. They've selected us. Where does that onboarding start? Does it start day one? When does it start? I mean, I think it starts from literally the moment they've accepted the position. We could argue it starts the moment they've applied for the position because, again, their mindset is already thinking about the job. Mm-hmm. You wrote a great job description. They're already. It's like buying a house. You read the listing. You look at all the pictures. You've already mentally been like, well, here's where I'll put my couch and this room will be this kids and all that, right? So you're already mentally kind of in the role leading up to that that first day. And when it comes to onboarding, we've got the skills version of onboarding and then we've got the cultural version of onboarding. So what's an employee really thinking about other than how am I going to do this job? Well, what's my desk going to be like? Is my boss going to be nice? How do I even get in the building on day one? How do I sign up for my direct deposit, right? So the more that we can de-stress the act of beginning employment is fantastic. Um, I'll tell you a silly thing I obsess over relative to onboarding that, again, it's it's not a training thing other than that I think we need to train managers on how to do this effectively. Um, So when you get hired, you get to your desk, like, Let's not be silly and say that that's the first, you're the first person who's ever sat at that desk. There are countless people who have sat at that desk. So let's picture all of us. Let's picture a desk that we've sat at before in our careers that belonged to somebody else before. Let's open the drawers. Okay. So in the upper right, what do we got? We got some post-it notes. We got some pens. uh, We got some, uh, we got some uh, uh, paper clips. Uh, let's go into the upper left drawer. What do we got there? Oh, we got some. Oh, we got some takeout menus. Uh, so that's cool. And you got you get the idea. You've got all the things that are left from the previous employee that they didn't care enough to take the sugar packets. You know all that stuff. Um, the and that's not a mints. They, yeah, the mints, the, the hand sanitizer that they gave out with the company logo on it, right? That's half-used bottle, right? So it's the stuff that they were too lazy to throw away or didn't care enough to take with them to their next position. Um, and that's that doesn't feel very good. That's like moving into an apartment and they left the area rugs and, you know, some other stuff that they just didn't feel like taking. It's like the Bare Naked Ladies old apartment song. Um, so... Making that moment, this might be their first job. This might be their first desk. Like, how do we make that special? Mm. Cleaning the desk, cleaning it out, fresh tchotchke, maybe a t-shirt, a water bottle, some mints, maybe, Rob, a handwritten welcome note from a leader in the organization or that person's direct manager, really making that first moment at the desk a special one. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the next thing I like to think about relative to onboarding goes back to human behavior. Um, If we're onboarding an extrovert, that person is going to be driven to want to meet 
everybody, right? You're going to want to walk around the building, shake all the hands, kiss all the babies, have all the lunches versus an introvert who they'll want to run out the back door. If you're like, well, first we're going to walk you around and we're going to introduce you to everybody. And then we're going to have a lunch with this person. And then we're going to have a meeting with this person. They're going to be so overwhelmed by the amount of socialization early on. So I don't love the idea of a one size fits all onboarding. If you want to do a one size fits most, that's cool. Um, but I like there to be enough flexibility in onboarding of a human being to where we can flex it and tailor it based on their natural drives and their natural behaviors, right? Yeah. Um, and and then, you know, where that then leads into training is, for me, it's a roadmap, Rob. It's, you know, what do I need to know to be dangerous and not run out the back door? I love soft landing programs love soft landing programs. We're going to train you in a safe space. We're going to get into the lab. You're going to listen to calls. We're going to do, you know, mock exercises. You're going to get to learn and train in a safe space. And then you're going to soft land. We're going to put you in a part of the call center, let's say, where we have cued to you bread and butter calls. Mm -hmm. Easy peasy, lemon squeezy. We, we know that this person isn't coming in hot. We know that it's basic requests, basic servicing. You're going to be super comfortable. And oh, by the way, we're going to surround you with mentors that are great coaches, that are super caring, uh, where you're going to be well supported before you move on into like the normal queue of everyday call. Mm -hmm. um, and so I do really believe in a step approach. Um, I like to onboard slow and that's really hard for a brand, especially a brand with high turnover. It's like, we just need warm bodies, man. Yeah. We need somebody who can fog a mirror and pick up a phone. Um, and I just think all that does is, is create the churn. Um, so really, really big on slow, steady. Um, and finally, I like to boomerang. I like to boomerang my new hires. And what I mean by that is, I like to bring them back into the onboarding realm mm -hmm. even months after they've started. Um, because the one thing about onboarding and training, training I found, Rob, is that you don't know what you don't know until you realize you don't know it. Yeah. And we don't ever give our new hires an opportunity to fly back to the nest where it's mm -hmm. safe and mama bird is there to bring you breakfast. Um, and so I really love intentionally boomeranging folks back month three, month six, year one. Oh my goodness. I love a, a good old fashioned year one boomerang. Because what ends up happening is you, it actually helps retention. You get this cohort of people that you go through this experience of onboarding together. Mm -hmm. That's a very powerful thing. You get to know one another. You're all experiencing the same thing at the same time. You're all scared. You're all vulnerable. You've, there's, but there's camaraderie there. You're like a platoon in boot camp. And if there's something about knowing that that platoon's getting invited back and you're going to get to keep that camaraderie with people um, that I really love, I love embedding that into new hire onboarding programs where, you know, month three, month six, month 12, you're giving these folks a chance to come back mm -hmm. um, to be vulnerable to be able to say, Hey, I know you trained us on this. I did, but I just, I didn't get it. I'm still struggling through it. Thanks for bringing me back to a safe place where I can, you know, really try to nail it down. And the other thing that that really helps with Rob is that you're hiring different learning styles. Hmm. You know, you might be hiring folks, you know, like, so look, I, I have ADD. Um, one of my favorite books, um, a book called Faster Than Normal by Peter Shankman, who's a great CX guy, but also is a CX guy with wild ADHD. Uh, you know, and and I love that he called the book Faster Than Normal because 
you know, when, when I got diagnosed with ADD, it was just that I was diagnosed with it. And he would argue I, I was gifted with it because mm. I have a faster than normal brain. But that also means I'm going to learn very differently as a new hire. Yeah. Um, I'm going to gloss over a lot. I'm going to wing it. And I, I might need to be reeled back in occasionally. So be it something like the gift of ADHD or be it something like the gift of I learn by doing or I learn by reading, um, you know, being as flexible and nimble as possible in that onboarding experience will really help with retention and a variety of different learning styles. Yeah. The boomerang thing really struck home with me because this is something that I implemented. We we had a one particular program that had a very long training. There were a lot of different call types involved with that, a lot of different skills that you had to learn. And, you know, we found that if you just did all of the training and then even with that, that soft landing, there were so many struggles with that. And what we ended up doing was, was splitting that. So we do one part, kind of the easy stuff, right. And then Mm. go dip the toes in the water. Let's, let's take some real calls. Let's let you figure out what, what you don't actually know and what gives you trouble. Um, there's also a benefit just at, at certain parts of the day that those first few days of, of taking calls of just getting everybody off the phones and just kind of, Hey, let's, let's talk about what happened today and, and yeah. let's go over some of the, the challenges that you had. But then we were able to come back into the classroom and like build on those skills and and start to do more complex things because they weren't any longer focused on just answering the phone. And what do I say? Because as you well know, that's like day one. It's like they forget how to talk on a phone. Like they forget, <laughs> yeah. like I, oh, I'm supposed to talk now. What do I say? Like that's just everybody gets that stage fright the the very first time that they take a phone call, or or most people do. And so once you can get past that stage fright experience, so that they're a little more confident just with the flow of a call, now you can come back and let's let's build on those skills and and teach you how to do some other things that are going to come up and other needs that customers have. And it's easier for them then to focus on the process of whatever it is that they're going to be learning because they're not scared about taking phone calls anymore. The phone calls part, they're like, okay, I get it. I can handle that. Now I'm going to learn some new processes. I'm really glad you brought up the confidence of the newer folks in that first time that they answer the phone for a couple of different reasons. One is I remember the very first time I opened my microphone on live radio and it was diary of the mouth. And I just talked and talked and talked about 18 different things. And when I sat down, you know, radio does like a quality program. You know, you're every time you turn on your microphone, it starts recording and you sit down with your boss and you listen back to tape. And I remember, you know, we were having that first coaching session and he said, EJ, I want you to get a big piece of paper right now and write down these three words in big Sharpie. And I've used this in call centers before. And so he said, I want you to, next time you open your microphone, 30 seconds before you open the microphone, I want you to read those three words and just remember these three words as you begin speaking to your audience, the words were preparation, concentration, moderation. Mm. And that's never left me, be it radio or a speaking engagement or training or, or sales call or whatever it is, is, you know, ultimately what he was saying was be ready to say what you want to say and less is more is ultimately what he was saying. Right. Um, And so preparation, concentration, moderation. But the other thing that came to mind for me, Rob, was when you go into a retail store, let's say you go to target and you've got a cashier there who's new. They always have on their name tag, it says that they're training, right? Be patient with me. I'm training today. Mm -hmm. It doesn't exist in call center. Does it? No. Um, wouldn't that be awesome though? Wouldn't it be cool 
if we allowed our soft landing folks, our newest folks to pick up the phone and say, thanks for calling. My name is EJ. And while I'm training today, I'm so excited to help you. It's wow, an interesting. Okay, that's cool. <laughs> yeah. It's an interesting thought. I think it can go potentially one of two ways. It could hopefully get someone to be a little more patient. Uh, but then you you also get those that are coming in hot that are just like, oh, for sure. Don't want to talk yeah. to you immediately. Better get me and someone else. That's hopefully where, you know, between IVR and AI, we already know that that person is coming mm -hmm. in a little hot, right? Yeah. And we've steered that call away from that soft landing person anyway. Uh, but you're, you're totally right. It's no different than you see that name tag at Target and you're in a rush and you go, ah, screw it. I'm going to self-checkout. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> EJ, this has been a fantastic conversation. We could probably go on for another two hours. I, have I mean, at minimum over a beverage someplace at yeah. some time, right? Yeah, I think that could happen, but I'm not sure that the audience is ready to stick around for another two hours with us. So maybe we'll just, we'll do a boomerang at some point. We'll put and, a pin in it. Yeah, oh, let's not do that. Let's not put a pin in it. Let's... <laughs> Do you have any? Do you have any other jargon you want to throw out? Any other buzzwords? Corporate speak. That See, that's like, like it takes us right back to the sports broadcaster thing. Like we'll just put out, we'll put out all the cheesy stuff you possibly can. Ah, uh, EJ, thanks so much for joining Next in Q. It's been great. Thank you for the invitation, Rob. Much appreciated. Next in Q is brought to you by Happy Two and is produced by me, Rob Dwyer. If you enjoy this podcast. Please, by all means, subscribe and or rate this podcast in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. But more importantly, please tell just one person about this podcast. Word of mouth is the best way for people to discover new content. As always, thanks for listening.